Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Esther Wolfson, whose book, Corvus, A Life with Birds, is a delight from start to finish, a wry, thought-provoking, and even at times moving account of what it is like to share your life and your home with a crow, a magpie, and a rook. Chicken the Rook is undoubtedly the star of the show, so I began by asking Esther how she'd come across her. Well, Chicken came into our lives when she was fledgling. She was found by friends of my daughters. Um, they were at a guide camp out in the woods in Deeside near Christmas Castle. And we already had, we had doves and we had a cockatiel, and they assumed that since we had those birds, we didn't know about, um, about anything that had fallen from its nest, so they brought chicken to us. I think she was probably just learning to fly, uh, because there was certainly nothing physically wrong with her that we took her in. And she's been with us, that was all, 20-odd years ago. And the name, well, I was reading, um, I used to read the New Yorker a lot. In fact, I still do. I had just read about a drag artist called Madame Chikaboomskaya. And I don't know why, but I just thought, oh, I think that will call her that. And of course, it got shortened to chicken. So it's rather confusing for people that I should have a book called chicken. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with the sort of distinctions between the different members of the, the Corvid family, the crows and the rooks and the ravens, tell me, tell me what sort of characteristics mark out the, the rook, both physically and, and also in its sort, of, um, its sort of temperament and behavior. Rooks are the ones with the long beaks and the grey faces. They're primarily found in um, farming country. You see crows as well popping about in the fields, but, but rooks really are the ones that you, know, you most often see. So they've got got the the grey face. They in character, they I mean they're they're like all corvids. They're incredibly intelligent. They're argumentative, but I think they're they're sort of slightly gentler in in their or seem to be, I mean, I'm extrapolating from experience of one, but in general, I think that they're rather sort of, um, well, I wouldn't say peaceable, but they're rather, they seem to be rather sort of good-natured, popping sorts of birds. Crows are the ones that you tend to see in cities more, with the slightly shorter black beaks, and black faces and, and beaks, and um, they, they seem to be a little bit more solitary. I mean, they do all flock together and roost together, but... And you tend to see them in pairs popping about uh, city parks and so on. Jackdaws are have got the, the sort of silver eyes and they've got flat panels of feathers uh, down the side of their heads. And they've got a very distinctive sort of walk, sort of bobbing kind of forward walk. Ravens, you don't... Um, nobody much sees ravens that much in this country. They tend to be sort of mountain country birds. Um, they are meant to be the most fiercely intelligent of all birds, not just corvids. I mean, they're, they are astonishingly clever creatures. All the corvids have got very large brains and mm. are clever, but the ravens really sort of have it. And then there's the magpie, you know, very obvious black and white, and they're, I would think, probably rival ravens in intelligence because they're amazingly intelligent. In the course of, of the book, you take in a magpie called Spike, and it's very, it's very interesting to see the contrast in temperament and behavior between Spike the magpie and Chicken the, um, the rook. Very much so. I mean, Spike was not, I mean, Chicken's afraid of everything. Spike was afraid of absolutely <laughs> nothing. 
He was completely fearless. He was incredibly inquisitive. He was very self-possessed. He was, he could be quite aggressive. And well, I mean, I found him. You know, this is valley judgment. I found him incredibly charming and delightful and and funny and fas- absolutely fascinating. And of all creatures, there are very few who can demonstrate that they have self-consciousness. Elephants mm. can, dolphins can, some of the higher primates, humans and magpies. Mm. And the way it's demonstrated is when, in experimental conditions, if you put a magpie in front of a mirror, shine a red light onto its breast feathers, it will start to preen itself, which shows that it's looking in the mirror and thinking, hey, that's me. For everything else will think, who's that? And assume it's, it, it's another creature. And that's clearly a sign of great intelligence. I thought one of the the most astonishing scenes in the whole book concerned Spike the Magpie, and it was when you came home and you could hear what sounded like your own voice. Tell me me what what happened that day. Well, I came in once, and in fact, after that, you know, I I used to kind of creep in so that I would (laughs) would see him doing it. I I hear a voice in the kitchen, and it is conversational, and it sounds... You know, with all the intonation, somebody asking questions and chatting and commenting. Not words, but in, in, in syllables. Sound sounded incredibly like human speech. It did sound like me. And it mm. was Spike. And he was practicing words. He was just practicing speech. Having a dialogue with himself. I mean, he used to, he used to you know, engage a lot in mimetic speech. You know, he'd say hello beautifully and clearly and... Um, which is something magpies do, they are fantastic mimics, but he was actually practicing um, human speech. How, how big a repertoire do you think he had? Did you ever sort of try to count the, the items in his vocabulary? It wasn't that vast. Well, he could say his name and he could say several swear words rather <laughs> embarrassingly <laughs> clearly. Mm. And the odd thing, I think he probably knew a lot more than he'd actually demonstrated. I mean, what mm. was one of his favorites? Mm. You know, you come in and say, Spike, can you say, what? And this is obvious. I mean, again, he used it appropriately. So it's difficult to know if that was just pure mimicry or him knowing what he was saying. But mm. very difficult thing, language and words. You don't know. And I mean, some of the parrots, it is just purely mimetic. But yeah. then people have done work which has shown that they actually do have understanding. So it's, I think it's actually a huge area of research that has not yet been done. Now, now tell me, on a purely practical level, how did you and your household adjust to having corvids flapping about the place? Because they're not, they're not normal. I was going to say they're not normally considered pets, but one of the things your book reveals is that Dickens and Capote and Mozart and Byron all had corvids as pets. Maybe I should rephrase that. Yes, well, you know, it sounds odd to say, but we really didn't think about it. We, you know, chicken arrived and we sort of thought, oh, right, you know, she's, she's landed on us and we didn't think of anything else we could do except keep her and I mean, the way, you know, I suppose it's much the way you get a dog or a cat or something and it fits into your life somewhere and potters about. Once you've been away from the wild for, you know, a short time, it's very difficult. I mean, you can reintroduce them, but you need space and you need you need to know what you're doing. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't be able to now. So we, um, when she got large enough and started flying about, we, um, clipped her wings so that she can't bump into it, you know, she can't sort of fly into a wall or anything. We couldn't do that with Spike because, because there would have been no point because what he did, he moved by jumping. Mm. So he would leap onto a chair and onto the fridge and up to the top of the kitchen. So, so 
it didn't make any difference. And he actually did fly about the house. But he was, very, he was of course, much smaller and much more maneuverable. Mm. And he could kind of fly around corners and upstairs and riding about, and it, it didn't really make that much difference. You say, you know, you kind of took, or they took to you, and it all, it all sort of seemed quite natural, but you found that other people, when they visited the house, didn't respond so comfortably. I mean, and you sort of, you sort of think in the book about this sort of atavistic fear that, that large corvids inspire. I think people don't know what they're going to do. They don't, you know, I, I, I think I said, you know, make it clear in the book, I was very scared of birds before I, I got used to them. When we first got, got my doves, I was terrified of them. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's so flapping and, you know, you, you really don't know what their intentions are. And, of course, there's all this sort of superstition about Corvid so that people come and think, good Lord, this woman has got got the crows in her house and, and they are scared they are hmm. um, whether it's rational or not hmm. I mean you know they're well they do have quite sharp beaks and you don't know what they're going to do I mean with Spike I was always very careful I didn't let him fly around when there was anybody hmm. here unless they were very certain about him because you know he, he could actually come down and give you a nip if he fancied him hmm. In the book, Esther, you, you reflect on what you call the Faustian Pact, whereby a wild creature gives up some of its wildness in return for, for life. And is that something you sort of still ponder all these years later? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, I, as soon as I got Ziki, the crow, who's almost, was well, he be two in August? Well, he, no, he's actually about two now, because they all have their birthdays in spring, of course. Mm. So he's just about two. I got him when he was a little bit older. He must have been three or four months old. And he's got, he was silent for a long time after I got him, and he's got something wrong with his, his foot. He could not survive, and probably could never have survived in the wild. So what does one do? You know, you keep him or he dies. And, and I don't like it. I know the limitations in his life. But, I mean, from the birds that I've got, it's never been that choice between life inside a house or life in the wild. It's been life inside a house or death. And, you know, given the way we feel about these things, I, you know, I have no reason to think that they feel otherwise. And I do, try, you know, I, I, I think I've kind of tried to make it clear in the book, but I try to what I can for them. I try to give them all this, you know, apart from feeding and so on, you know, as much, if I can call it intellectual stimulation and, mm. you know, company and all the rest of it. I think he's got his own opera tapes to entertain mm. him. You were very, you were very funny on... Um their tastes in music, and you say they have very, um, very clear tastes. There, there are some composers they, they love, and others they, they, they flee from. That's right. Chicken Hair loves Benjamin Britten. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody gave me this uh, bit of Rakhavara um, mm. called Cantus Articus, and it's got some bird song. And I thought, oh, she's bound to like this, but mm. no, she didn't. She, she marched out of the room when she heard it. And recently, I've actually got a recording of it. I put on Radio 3 one evening and didn't know what was on. And it was a bit of Wagner. And Vicky immediately started shouting along to music. And it was <laughs> marvelous. I just got my recording recorded. Mm. And there's this magnificent sound of you know, bellowing of Gotterdemerung with, <laughs> with, with crow shouting along, or singing along, I should mm. say. In accompaniment, and I don't know if it, actually I don't know if that was um, it was protest or appreciation. Mm, mm, mm. I couldn't really tell. He seems he does seem to like the higher, you know, 
high sounds. You know, the the um, he liked female voices and and, yes. and higher sounds. So it might well have been protest, but mm. it's a fantastic recording. Now let let me ask how these years of of keeping corvids has changed you because you you write very very funnily about it being a bit like joining a secret organisation or cosa nostra or marrying into foreign royalty. So how is it? How has it sort of changed your life? Well, it's really it's it, it's put me in my place. It's uh, it's altered my view of the relationship between humans and and animals and birds. I think it's something that we perhaps you know perhaps. Maybe it's just me. I didn't think about that much before. I think people tend to accept the Aristotelian view, you know, the scaling of Tura, that we're uh, human beings are at the top and everything else is you know, somewhere on mm. a scale. I don't think that anymore. I would be most surprised if there aren't many creatures and birds that uh, can rival us and or they can't do the same things, which is probably just as well. They can certainly do other things just as well. It's made me feel humble. And it's made me feel that I think there's a great sense of comfort in in the world it just it I feel much more at one with uh, you know with creatures than I did I mean to have this sort of close relationship with something that looks and is so different and yet feels in some way the same Mm -hmm. is wonderful I think I'm terribly lucky I mean you write about I think was it Vilnius you were in um, one winter and the sort of feeling of not being not being in a completely alien environment because there were there were there were um was it crows there or the rooks the rooks has got a lot of spires and, and beautiful churches and the rook is a sort of you know almost a symbol of of Vilnius. and it was a very sort of strange and alien place in many ways and it was it was just it was wonderful you know it was just like you know having chicken with me and hearing mm. the sounds of of books and seeing them and their familiarity I felt you know I felt part of that rather than part of the part of the the, the human community can you imagine a, a life without covids around you well I have to you know chickens getting getting old and um I mean six still young but yes I you know I must say I don't relish the idea I, I've always got someone on the lookout to try and get me uh, try and find a fallen something fallen out of it so I'd really like <laughs> like a jackdaw mm. because I think I, I, I so can't imagine life without without you know, I, I suppose I would be able to travel once so on, but no, it would be very very quiet and very I don't know. I I think that would be very miserable. <laughs> After the interview was over, I said I was sorry not to have heard from Chicken during it. This was the result. Hang on, in my foot chick, sit down. You know, go on, go on. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I feel like I feel like I've met her. Um, oh. The line says, "Great."